0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In the text that we will look at this morning, we'll see the importance of what I spoke about earlier, understanding the gospel as a kind of hospitality, a kind of welcome. So hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Father, our request to you is that we might abound in hope. As you call us in your word, we pray that we would answer in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes when you come up with titles for sermons, you later reflect on it and regret And believe me, if you ever find yourself in the position of preaching a sermon called How to Abound in Hope, no matter the circumstances, you will feel a little bit of trepidation, like maybe you have bitten off more than you can chew. Maybe this title promises a little more than the sermon is going to be able to deliver. But if you preach a sermon like that in these times, you will definitely feel that way. And you will be tempted, as I was, to modify, to soften those words. But they're Paul's words. As you can see in their words, we need to hear. If you found yourself in the hospital recovering from an injury so much so that you couldn't even walk without assistance and they sent in the physical trainer and the trainer looked at you in your condition and says, great, let's get started. We're going to train you to run the marathon. You might ask for a different trainer. You might ask for a different therapist. You might worry that, that this therapist is a little over ambitious needs to turn it down a notch. If you're living paycheck to paycheck, if you can barely pay your bills, and then a contractor comes up and says, hey, it's time to start building your dream house. You want to put the brakes on right there. Seems a little unrealistic to do something like that in times like this. Don't tell me that I'm going to run if the truth is I'll be lucky to walk. And don't tell me I'm going to have a mansion if the reality is, I'm just hoping to be able to keep a roof over my head. it Seems a little bit too Pollyanna-ish. And now the apostle Paul comes along and he says, may you abound in hope. Is he serious? May you abound in hope? Does he realize that he is saying this to people who are struggling just to have a little shred of hope? Just to hold on to a little bit of hope. And he says to us, abound in hope. Somebody says something like this to you. These are words that are guaranteed to discourage you. When you're going through life and you read something like this. If you're struggling to have hope. And then you see Paul saying, may you abound in hope. Inevitably, you're going to feel like there's something wrong with you. Like you must be doing Christianity wrong because everybody else is abounding in hope and you're struggling to have even a a, a little bit of hope can be really discouraging. Also language like this is really rife for manipulation. You hear someone like this in a, a position of ecclesial authority, an apostle, no less saying, may you abound in hope You get nervous. You start feeling for your wallet because you know, like, there's a big ask coming in that. This is the language we associate with, like, prosperity, health, and wealth type shenanigans. We don't talk this way. Certainly in Presbyterianism, we don't talk this way, especially if we have a pastor whose spiritual gift is cynicism. We just don't talk about abounding in anything except possibly, like, pain and suffering. But to abound in hope, It just seems too ambitious, too ambitious to speak that way. I mean, it's true. It it, it can be discouraging and it can be manipulated, but those things are true only when we shift the focus. It's discouraging and it's manipulative when the focus shifts onto us, onto our weakness on the one hand or onto our corrupt desires on the other. But the thing that you can be assured of is that when Paul says abound in hope, he is not focusing on you and your ability. Instead, he is focused on the triune God, on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that abounding in hope is not his assignment to you. It is his wish, his prayer, his benediction to you. He appeals to God that you might have the power to abound in hope. Biblical hope is a little bit different from worldly hope. Biblical hope has this key, the key to having biblical hope, to abounding in the kind of hope that Paul is talking about, is to see Jesus' work as the ground, as the foundation for all our hope. To see Jesus' work as the reason for hope, Hope, which is why he goes on to talk about that work and then also to see the Spirit's power that makes us abound in hope. So we'll look at the grounds for hope in the work of Jesus. and Then we'll look at the power to hope that comes from the Spirit. Jesus' work gives us grounds for hope. In verse 7, Paul says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That word, therefore, signals to you that this is a statement he's making that has a a summary effect. In conclusion, he's telling us to welcome others as Christ has welcomed you, us. And that word, welcome, is being used to kind of sum up the entirety of that that work of service, that work of reconciliation. Reconciliation. The word translated here, welcome, sometimes you'll see it translated as as accept or as received. Christ has accepted you. He has received you. And so you ought to accept and receive others. So the welcome basically is, is connecting how Christ relates to us. And then saying that should inform how we relate to one another. In the same way that Christ welcomed us for the glory of God. He now calls us to welcome one another for the glory of God. And all of the, the, the words Paul has said: said, love one another, love your enemies, all of that, to, to bear with the weak consciences of others, all of that is summed up in this idea of welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. The work of redemption entirely summed up in the idea of hospitality and the act of Of welcoming those who were outside and bringing them in, which is what Christ has done. This is a very warm and personal truth for you to meditate on. You were once outside the family of faith. And if you are now in it, it is because Christ has brought you in. He has welcomed you. And now he calls you to do the same for others. You can be assured as you reflect on this, that if the host, if the master of the feast has given you a seat at the table, then he intends for you to be filled. He intends for you to eat and drink. He intends for you to celebrate as one of his people, which should give you hope. But as you think about that, the idea of Christ bringing you in and and seating you at the table, remember something about feasts, which is that they are not one-on-one affairs. A feast isn't one-on-one. A feast is, is huge. It's a party. And Christ is throwing a feast. And at a feast, there are many different people seated at the table with many different beliefs, many different backgrounds, many different degrees of strength and weakness. And the wonder of it all is that the host has brought them all together into union. Around the same table. It should fill us with wonder. To look at the table. That Jesus Christ has set. And to see. The diversity of people. Who are seated there. You find people you never would have expected. To be in union with. And you're only in union with them. As Christ has welcomed them in. As he welcomed you. Bringing you all together under one roof to experience God's glory. That's what Jesus did. Now Paul says, that's what we are to do as well. And Jesus did this to both the Jews and the Gentiles. As Paul points out, and really this is the, 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 the summary in a nutshell of everything that he says from verse eight, all the way through verse 12, all of those different quotations that he gives us all of it is just to make this point, that this welcoming that Jesus did was, we might say, like, it was very undiscriminating. It was a welcome that was thrown wide open, like the Jew and Gentile alike. He says, to the Jews, Jesus is a divine host. He welcomed them by becoming a servant to them. By becoming a servant to them. He did it, Paul says in order to demonstrate the truthfulness of God on the one hand, so Jesus in becoming a servant to the circumcision, a servant to the Jews, is demonstrating that God's record of faithfulness to that his chosen people, that, that there was a truthfulness to all of his claims, a fidelity to all of it. And it's demonstrated in the fact that Jesus comes to serve them and to welcome them. He fulfills the word that the Father has spoken. And also, he comes to confirm the promises. The covenant promises made to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Christ comes as the great mediator of the new, total, fulfilled covenants, And in all of that, he is a servant to the circumcision. He is giving them what was promised to them, which is all well and good. But in the very same breath, Jesus says he is also a servant to the Gentiles. Remember how this stuck in the craw of the prophet Jonah. His big objection to his prophetic mission was that he was sent to the wrong people. He was a prophet of Israel who was sent to call them to repentance. Not the Israelites, but but the pagans. They didn't deserve what he was bringing to them. And he resented the mission God had given him. But it shouldn't have been a secret to him. Because as Paul demonstrates, God reveals throughout the Old Testament his intention to show mercy to the nations, to the Gentiles. This is nothing new. So he quotes a series of passages here. He's giving you things from uh, Moses, from David, and from the prophets. And, And I should just point out, as you're reading a passage like this, where you're getting these sort of machine gun quotations from the Apostle Paul. The temptation is always to go back, to look at each one, to go back to the original context and kind of understand the the depth of what it meant originally, which is a good thing to do. But rhetorically, understand here that what he's doing is he's overwhelming you. Like he's hitting you one after another. He's not saying if we go back to the Old Testament and and we're really scholarly about it, we will see subtly if we look underneath the surface and interpret well, that that there is this sort of hint, this, this idea that perhaps there will be mercy for the Gentiles. No, no. He's saying it's everywhere. Like this is the same spirit that led Jesus in speaking to Nicodemus to say, like you're a master of Israel and you don't know these things? Because it's written everywhere. I've not made this a secret. So to demonstrate that, he shows you that you find it in Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. You find it in David in the Psalms. You find it in the prophets in Isaiah. It was always there, this intention of God to serve and welcome the nations, the Gentiles, Jew and Gentile alike. God always intended to gather many nations under his roof. And Christ accomplished this impossible task by becoming a welcoming servant. That's how he did it. That was his strength. That's how he united us. Which means, as Paul says in Galatians two twenty-eight and 29, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That work of Jesus summed up in that passage in Galatians, that is the whole foundation for our hope. If there is any hope for any of us, it is there in that work of union, of welcoming, of service. That's the foundation of our hope. If Jesus could accomplish that, the question you have to ask yourself is, what could he not accomplish? What reason is there for us not to hope? I want to say something for a moment, though, on biblical unity, as opposed to the kind of unity sometimes we're tempted to imagine here. If you think about God as he is in his person, one of the things we've said in our service that that we talk about is God as triune. Right, the doctrine of the Trinity, the three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you think about that, you recognize something interesting about God. That in the Godhead, unity and diversity are both present. They're not only both present, but they're also uh, not one over the other, they're kind of equally ultimate. The Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son. In order to become one, the three persons do not have to be subsumed or annihilated. They are distinct, and yet they are one. Interestingly, in the world that God has created, we see a similar kind of dynamic. In the history of philosophy, there's always this temptation to, to elevate the one or the many at the top to see unity or diversity as the ultimate reality. And the reason why it's, it's an ongoing struggle from the ancients down to this day is because neither one of them belongs on top because that's not the nature of the reality that the triune God has created. Instead you would expect the triune God to create a reality in which unity and diversity are equally ultimate that unity can be real without diversity being annihilated and vice versa. So biblical unity is not the end of diversity. In fact, biblical unity is how diversity flourishes. When Paul speaks of being like-minded, when he speaks of, of being united, don't think in your mind that what he means is, then we'll all be the same. To be united is to all be the same in every respect. No. To be united is with all of our our beautiful created diversity to be brought into unity. Unity won't steamroll over our different histories and identities, our different concerns. We don't have to abandon who we are in order to be one in Christ. All we must abandon to be one in Christ is our sin. God brings us together in a beautiful union as we are. And we don't have to be annihilated or poured back into an ocean of oneness in order to be at one. The human unity is a little bit different. Like in the world, we achieve unity by subtracting the other. The way that we can all be like-minded is to find out who doesn't agree with us and to drive them out. To make them disappear. And this is the way union and unity is often pursued in the world that we live in. We unite against them. We achieve oneness by getting rid of them. Biblical unity is achieved by bringing the other in. By bringing them in to become us. By welcoming and serving them as Christ welcomed And served us. That's what unity and like-mindedness in Christ looks like. And when unity on any terms seems impossible, as it does for a lot of us right now, we need the example of Christ's unifying work if we're going to have hope. You may think to yourself, wow, we could never be united. We're, We're more divided than ever, as we said last time. But when you find yourself thinking that way, shift the focus off of yourself and onto Christ and recognize the unity that Christ creates. In addition to that, we need the power of the Spirit in order to abound in hope. The Spirit gives us power to abound in hope. In verse 13, at the end of our passage, just as he did last time, Paul shifts a little bit The way that he's speaking, he's been speaking to us, but now in verse 13, he begins to speak to God in the form of benediction, a blessing to us. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. It's interesting when you compare the two benedictions that we've encountered here in this chapter You see a similarity. If you go back to verse 5, Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement. Here he says, May the God of hope. There's something interesting about that. He talks about the importance earlier of enduring and being encouraged, and then he points you to God as the God of those things. Here he talks about the importance of hope, and then he points us to God as the God of hope. What does that mean? Well, it means that the things that we lack, the things that we are desperate for, the things whose absence we deeply feel, these are things that that belong to God and are gifts of God. If we want hope, Paul says, well, we need to talk to God about that because he is the God of hope. If we lack hope, then let us go to him and let us pray that he might fill us with hope. And that's how he puts it. May the God of hope fill you. And when you hear that, you're probably thinking of, of things like be filled with the Holy spirit, that sort of uh, filling or indwelling, which is good. But think about that word fill. It has a simpler meaning as well. When we talk about being filled or being full, that's a hospitality word. That's a table word. You come to the table in order to be filled in order to be full. And the host, in order to be a good host, tries to encourage you to be filled until you are full. You perhaps have, have been in hospitality situations where you've been on the receiving end of that kind of encouragement, where it's like you, you ate what was given to you and, and you're done. But the host is like, are you sure you don't want more? Are you sure you don't want more? As if there's this pathological need to make sure that everyone is going kind of to fold the bursting before they get up from the table if they're able to. Well, you see reflected in that, this impulse of hospitality that the host desires that the guests be filled. When Paul speaks this way, may the God of hope fill you. Remember that to be filled is to eat your fill. It is to be satisfied. May the God of hope satisfy you. May the God of hope end your hunger. May the God of hope give you what it is you are trembling for in filling you. That's the kind of benediction this is. What is it that's being served at the table? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. If you ever wondered what would be on the menu at a party thrown by Jesus, of course, there'd have to be some wine and some bread. But but here, you get a sense for the, let's say, the metaphysical realities of what Christ serves at his table. Joy and peace, all of it. The joy and peace are had only... In Christ the joy and peace are ours when we are filled at his table if we do not have joy if we do not have peace then we should know that our welcoming servant our great host desires to fill us with these things there's a certain way of eating though you get to this at the end may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing in believing. How do I consume this meal? How do I, I gain nourishment? How am I filled at this table in the act of faith, in the act of believing? That's how we eat. This experience of believing is how we take in our nourishment in Christ and are filled. This act of faith eating, if you will, is the Spirit's work within us. It's something the Spirit, through the, that spiritual power is doing in us so that we can abound in hope just as we abound in satisfaction and strength after a good meal. To abound in hope is to get up from Christ's table filled with, with a sense of tomorrow, filled with a sense of the promises fulfilled. We abound in hope when we are filled and satisfied by the word that Christ has spoken, by the power that applies that word to us, the power of the Spirit. I think the reason why when you hear abound in hope, words like that can be discouraging, or or they can be so easily manipulated, I think it all comes down once again to a kind of conflict in understanding, the way we see things and the way God sees them, between our way and God's way. When I hear those words hear God's words, like you, I'm tempted to interpret them my way, to hear what I want to hear. We have a certain way of hoping. We want to be hopeful, but we don't hope on our own terms. It goes something like this. I believe, therefore, that should move out of my way every obstacle to hope. My external circumstances should change. I have faith, I believe, and I will have hope when conditions change. God gives me reason to hope. If I don't have hope, it's because God hasn't moved the obstacles. And that's his problem. Hope comes when God clears the path for us. And if God hasn't cleared the path, how can he expect us to have hope, let alone abound in hope? That's our way, but it's not God's way. Interestingly, God has a way of hoping that looks very different. In God's economy, I believe, and now God fills me with joy and peace, despite the obstacles, despite the circumstances, so that I might overcome them. In my own strength, I cry out to God. God, make the path easier. But God responds, no, I will make you stronger, the change will be within you, and when you recognize that, you understand what Paul means when he cries out to God and says, you know, "May you abound in hope he 's not saying, "Lord, please intervene in the politics of the Roman Empire and make this pagan place much more conducive to your gospel. Maybe convert the emperor to christianity and and, and make everything great for Christians." In this empire, Lord, please do that so that we might abound in hope. Instead, facing the reality that he faces, he asks that in the midst of persecution, in the midst of of trial and suffering, that we would abound in hope. Not because God makes the world more welcoming of us, but he welcomes us in his strength into a deeper walk with him. Our struggles are real. If you're struggling to have hope, I don't want you to think I'm saying that you've got no reason to struggle. You you shouldn't be having a hard time. The struggles we have are real. The problems are real. And we won't abound in hope by denying that in some sentimental, spiritualized way. So we're not going to pretend that there's no reason to feel hopeless. And the truth is our strength is small. So we're not going to abound in hope by relying on willpower. If we leave this place and and someone asks you, what was the sermon about? And you say, oh, it was that I need to be more hopeful. You haven't heard what I'm saying. You're not going to be able to do it. Paul's not asking you to to suddenly turn around and, and, and embrace a new way of life. And then everything will be hopeful We're not going to pretend that making resolutions and turning over new leaves will lead to hope. If you want to be filled with joy and peace, then you've got to get to Christ's table and open wide. You've got to lean into your faith, into the act of believing. You have to become the welcoming servant that Christ has called you to be and pray for the power of the Spirit to fill you with hope. The Bible testifies to everything that God has done from beginning to end. Believing what it says, how could we not abound in hope? And believing what Christ has done, what he has welcomed us into, how could we not abound in hope? So let us get to the table and let us be filled by the God who intends, by his very act of hospitality,